ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Gerald Shertavian, the founder and CEO of Year Up. If you've yet to hear the story of Year Up, you're in for a real treat. Resulting from the impact through an organization known as Big Brothers Big Sisters, Gerald served as a big brother to a young adult named David Heredia. Gerald and the team at Year Up are on a mission, and the mission is to close the opportunity divide. What does this mean? Well, there's hundreds of thousands of underserved young professionals in our great country, young men and women who have unbelievable talent and passion, who simply need a chance to demonstrate their potential. Focusing on the ABCs, which Gerald and the Year Up team refer to as attitude, behaviors, and communication, the Year Up team has created a powerful platform that gives young professionals a chance to develop the skills they need to secure a chance at changing their life story. Inspirational is not strong enough a word to describe what Gerald and the Year Up team have done so far, and they're only getting started. Enjoy this captivating episode featuring Gerald Shertavian. Well, good morning, Gerald. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show with us this morning. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to spend it with us. My pleasure, Brian. So I want to jump right in. And uh, you're a graduate of both Bowdoin College and Harvard Business School. But in a previous interview that I saw, you said that your best education came on Saturdays in the 1980s, in the late 80s, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Can you talk about those Saturdays and how that shaped your outlook uh, on what has uh, turned into an incredible life uh, and journey uh, with Europe? Um, well, uh, thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, when I moved down to Wall Street in the uh, on 87, one of the first things I did uh, was to sign up to be a big brother and was matched with a young boy who lived in what was then the most heavily photographed crime scene in New York City. And I had the good fortune to spend every Saturday of my life with David, my little brother, and really got to understand something which was for me profound, which was that David's zip code, uh, the bank balance of his mom, uh, the school system he attended, and indeed the color of his skin, was truly affecting the opportunities to which he had access. And so those Saturdays for me taught me about the opportunity to divide in this country, uh, how zip codes can determine your destiny in pretty profound ways. Uh, it taught me we were wasting tremendous amounts of human capital in a country where we have no one to waste. And uh, taught me about racism, discrimination, and how that was being experienced, in this case, by a young boy who is now, for all intents and purposes, a member of our family. Um, so it was very, very profound learning that influenced the rest of my life and set a course to ultimately start year up to try to address some of the challenges that I saw up close 
over the three years of Saturdays I spent with David and his uh, family. So uh, obviously between the late 80s and founding Gear Up, which happened uh, a, a little over a decade, maybe a decade and a half later in, in uh, late 90s, uh, 2000, uh, you spent time both uh, in the banking industry and you also spent time as a technology entrepreneur uh, in London. And so clearly the, between 1987 and the, and the Saturdays that you spent with David and his brothers and his family and founding Year Up, uh, your journey took you in some different directions. Yet it sounds like this particular opportunity uh, to, to close the opportunity divide never really left your mind. Maybe you can share a little bit about uh, what the, the 1990s were all about for you and how things led you back to this uh, in the year 2000. Sure. So I knew I wanted to uh, start Year Up back in 89. In fact, I wrote my essays to get into Harvard Business School about starting a program to somehow provide young adults with opportunities so that they could realize their potential. So it was something that was uh, meaningful to me, important to me. When I came out of graduate school, I was unfortunately significantly in debt and uh, needed to get stable myself. So uh, having done you know, three years, uh, little less than three years on Wall Street, um, went back to Boston and uh, went to grad school at Harvard. And really when I came out of that, uh, a few of the folks I respected most highly over the two years I was in grad school had advised me pretty clearly that technology was gonna be a big thing in this world. It was just at the start of Windows coming out in you know, the, the whole introduction of the internet. And uh, I made a decision that uh, I was going to get into that industry and learn about it. Um, had an opportunity to co-found a software firm with two other gentlemen in London. And that journey, which uh, ran about seven years, all the way through the end of 1999, uh, put us on a path of, of growing effectively a business that designed and built software solutions around things like knowledge management, e-commerce, customer management systems. Um, it was a great time to obviously be in that industry. Uh, and we were fortunate to sell our company uh, prior to the crash of the dot-com industry. I always say better luck than judgment-like. And um, that put me in a position financially to devote all of my time and attention on now going back to the essays I wrote in 1989 and actually bring you up to life and to start a new organization focused on closing the opportunity divide. So Year Up's model is a bit unique, and I'll elaborate in that those that are paying for the service are actually the recipients of the service, which, you know, frankly, in the nonprofit world, you know, the development teams are usually out raising dollars uh, from those that uh, are aligned to the mission, want to participate. It meets their philanthropic goals and their giving. Yet the way you've built Year Up is much more uh, really built around a for-profit where the payers, those that are giving the money to Year Up, are the recipients of the service. Can you talk about um, why that has been uh, the way you've set it up from day one, and, and I guess the importance around aligning the economic incentives towards results as opposed to trying to generate results. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I think it's one of the reasons why Europe has been successful is that our economic incentives are aligned. Um, if we don't produce uh, great talent for corporate America, we would go bankrupt pretty quickly. And so, you know, to me, it, it keeps you honest. It ensures that you are continuously improving. Uh, you've got to listen to the folks who are uh, who are gaining access to the talent pipeline that we're helping to prepare. And it's, um, you know, it's our largest source of revenue today to drive the organization as the revenue we see from our corporations who have a need for talent. And I think so often in the nonprofit industry, uh, one person is paying for efforts uh, and it's, they're not the recipient of those efforts as well. So you really don't have aligned systems. You don't have aligned incentives and you don't actually have the feedback loops that force you to get better and better each time you do something. So we're constantly listening to our clients, constantly understanding what it is they need as people who want talent in this country. And then our primary stakeholder, our young adults, um, clearly are who we are here to serve. But we know that we can't serve our mission unless we do it through a market. And in this case, the market actually is able to provide the revenue we need to sustainably scale an organization and get it to a, a more significant level. So it's, it's been a, a, not only a way to keep yourself honest and improving, but it literally is a revenue engine that can scale something in an industry, i.e. the nonprofit industry, that largely has dysfunctional capital markets, and it's very, very hard to attract the type of revenue you need to grow something to a significant level. What's the most surprising feedback uh, you either have received or continually receive from the organizations who are uh, putting your young adults uh, to work? What, what, what's, what's been the biggest shock from a feedback loop standpoint? I would say when we started um, training and supporting young adults to be successful, uh, you know, this was back in the early days. I probably didn't even know how high and how fast our young adults could go. I remember when, you know, Ken Chanel could ask, could you prepare folks to support our enterprise systems, which would be learning Java programming, learning decision support tools like Pega. Um, and folks said, gee, can our young adults do this? And we said, well, the, the group's going to be in the pudding on this one. And the reality is they more than achieved what we would have hoped in terms of learning programming languages, uh, gaining skills that, frankly, some folks weren't quite sure they'd be able to gain in that short space of time. And so it, you know, it continually uh, shows me how motivated, hardworking young adults, when given the appropriate runway, uh, can learn and achieve incredible uh, outcomes, even more so than sometimes I may have imagined. So, you know, when uh, American Express tells us we want to hire hundreds of folks through your program to actually support some of our technical systems. Um, and this is a better source of talent for us. I mean, that is a huge wake up call for all companies to say, what am I missing by not investing in this talent pipeline? And how do I think about hiring in ways that, that tap into talent that, that is not being utilized well in this country in given the appropriate uh, support, could absolutely be utilized well and help our companies to stay competitive across the world. 
Do you think that says something uh, about the existing college and university model that exists today? Our post-secondary system will undergo radical change in the next 20 years. We're going to see more change in the next 20 years in post-secondary education than we have seen in the last 200 years of post-secondary. The reason is, is because that system, especially four-year fixed-term colleges, whilst incredible places of learning, uh, they will not be the vehicle through which this country is going to educate the millions and millions of folks we need to fulfill the demands of a knowledge-based economy. Our community college system isn't performing as well as it needs to. It isn't funded well enough to do that. It actually isn't providing some of the support systems and connections to labor markets that we need to make them more successful. Um, And so, yeah, we have to adapt our post-secondary systems to allow for multiple pathways into the mainstream economy uh, to be connecting employers much more thoughtfully into those educational systems. And we're going to have to do that out of motivated self-interest if we are to have uh, globally competitive companies that can draw in a knowledge base and a skills base to actually keep them competitive. So it sounds like, uh, if I can read between the lines, and if I'm incorrect, please let me know, that it's going to be the companies, the the corporations that are going to drive the educational revolution required to succeed as opposed to the colleges and universities doing it on their own. We believe that business uh, will increasingly get into the business of education, and that's perhaps through an alignment process, uh, through getting closer to uh, post-secondary institutions. Uh, we think that there's a role for the government to play in creating the right incentive systems. And clearly the government isn't going to be in a position to provide more resources. But what the government can do is create the appropriate incentive systems such that our community colleges are truly focused on not only completion, but also gainful employment uh, for those young adults who are looking to be gainfully employed at the end of that two years. Obviously, some are looking to transfer to four-year institutions, Um, but business is going to have to play a greater role in this process as we're seeing happen. And I don't think we'll recognize the variety of ways people are going to get into the mainstream economy 20 years down the road, Um, but it will have to change. It will change uh, if we are the the economy that we want going out. It's kind of a foregone conclusion. The only question is, how quickly it changes and how disruptive that change is going to be. So uh, I, want, I want to get back to the question that I asked, you know, the biggest shock or the biggest surprise you've heard uh, you know, feedback wise from the organizations and the, the companies that you're working with. Let me, let me to the other side of that coin, what's from the student's perspective, from the young adults that are going through year ups program, what's been the biggest surprise from them and uh, are they sharing with you suggestions about how they may have changed their high school experiences for those that attended um, compared to what they're learning through the year up program? So our, our students constantly provide feedback to us uh, about uh, not only how we improve our program, uh, which is incredibly helpful and their insight and knowledge there is integral to our actually getting better each day. Um, they have a clarity around what would need to happen in middle and high school to provide greater career uh, awareness, 
career exposure and career immersion such that every young person graduating from high school actually is career ready in addition to being college ready. Um, I've personally been able to spend a lot of time on the Board of Education of Massachusetts focused on career readiness. And I'm proud of the work we've done in Massachusetts to try to ensure that many, many more high school students get some of those career-ready skills um, in addition to being college-ready. And so this, it's so important when you think, Brian, that 50% of all the people that go to college in America today work full-time, right? And about 85% to go to college work at least part-time. So if you graduate high school and you're coming from a low-income background, the fact of the matter is, is that you have to do both pay-worthy activity and credit-worthy activity at the same time, Yep. right? You can't feed your brain if you can't feed your belly. So we've got to understand that the systems, the path, need to actually accommodate that duality of both working and learning. It is the norm for the majority of Americans in this country, yet our systems, our policies, our, our structures haven't actually caught up to recognize that the majority, the vast majority of Americans will work while they are gaining post-secondary degrees and credentials. And so preparing them earlier on for that reality uh, is both respectful and recognizes what they're going to need to actually be 21st century citizens and contribute to our economy and our communities. So as you talk about the difference between career readiness and post-secondary or college readiness, is, is, is that where essentially the ABCs, the attitudinal, behavioral, and communication skills comes into play and what Europe obviously does such a phenomenal job at teaching? Is that is that one of the distinctions between career readiness and college readiness that you're teaching? Well, so we think, if you think, what does someone need? Uh, just start back a little bit before Europe. If you're coming out of high school, what would you want? You'd want a set of academic skills, You'd want a set of uh, kind of workplace skills and readiness. Uh, and you'd want a set of kind of life, uh, social, emotional learning skills, right? You can, we use very different words in the country now to describe this. In fact, there's a complete confusion about do we call this social, emotional learning? Do we call them power skills, professional skills, soft skills? I think most people would agree, underlying the words, their competencies like teamwork, communication, problem solving, initiative, reliability, the things that you actually need uh, from a social, emotional learning perspective. So what Europe does is focus very heavily on what we say ABCs, attitude, behavior, and communications. We go much deeper to understand what does that specifically mean and how do we help students develop those skills? How do we assess that they've actually achieved those skills in very experiential uh, learning environments here at Europe. Um, and then we focus heavily on making sure someone has a marketable skill, something that there is a true market for, whether it be cybersecurity or quality assurance testing or fund accounting or sales or Java. So we then have to hit a market where there's a need to hire people. But the reality is, is you hire for skills and fire for behavior in this country. Yep. So, Yes, you need the skills to start, but if you do not have those attitudes and behaviors, you will not be successful. You will get fired, and that's just the reality. So we're very, very focused on the ABCs 
attitude, behavior, and communications, in addition to ensuring our students come out being uh, in demand for the economy that they're heading into. I want to switch gears uh, for a moment at least and talk about civil rights. And you've said that social entrepreneurship is the next step in the civil rights movement. And I hope I'm not taking that out of context. If I am, please correct me. But share what you mean by that statement, your philosophy around the importance of social entrepreneurships and its relationship to the next stage of the civil rights movement. So the, uh, the March on Washington, uh, if you look at that march, what buttons people wore on their chests, they said it was a march for not only freedom, it was a march for jobs and freedom. Um, the, the last step, uh, as Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated, he was actually starting to talk much, much more about economic justice in addition to social justice. So how do you actually be, how do you get that economic justice? So what is year up if nothing but an opportunity for young people to get the economic justice they deserve, um, the educational justice they deserve, to gain the skills and knowledge and experience and credentials and degrees they need, and to do that in a way that's uh, achievable, um, this is an aspect or a continuation of a very, very long journey that Europe is not, you know, Europe is merely one player, one actor on a very broad stage that is fighting for important rights in important aspects of justice. In this case, for us, it's about economics and education and ensuring that our young people have access to that. So it's, you know, continuing on a journey that was started by giants well before us, and, you know, we kneel next to those folks in our humble, as we keep pushing down the path to create greater justice. Um, and I think many social entrepreneurs are tackling various aspects of justice. Uh, in, in his reality, the government won't be in a position to have more money to solve social problems and social challenges in the future. We know that to be true. So who's trying to lean into some of these challenges and actually create new models, new ways of thinking, new ways of engaging, in this case, young people. Um, we're just one actor on a bigger stage. We would never overstate our role, uh, and ho hopefully I was approaching with a humility and a gratitude of service uh, to be fortunate enough to actually be on this journey. Um, so, you know, we take it very, very seriously, but we also are pretty humble about how we approach it. So at, at Harvard today, um, the largest club on campus, if I'm not mistaken, is the Social Enterprise Club. And, and I believe you serve on the board of advisors for Harvard Social Enterprise Initiative. And when you were at Harvard, I believe uh, I either read or saw in an interview that you did that you were one of less than a dozen people in, in a nonprofit club or in the nonprofit club on campus. And clearly that, that has completely reversed itself. What What's What's driving this change right now, in your opinion? So, and it's you know, it's great to see, and uh, at certainly at um, Harvard, the support the social enterprise received is largely driven by John Whitehead, who had the vision for what this could become, and then developed the faculty and the teaching and the case studies. Um, 
so institutionally, uh, there was a support system in place that nurtured something. More broadly, though, uh, you've also had a society over the past 30 years where inequality has grown pretty significantly. You now have uh, these distressed zip codes, is how they're calling them today in this country, where if you are born into these distressed zip codes, your chances of getting out are very low. And that's not based on your ability, your motivation, or your desire. So you have uh, isolated pockets of poverty that are growing and actually making it really tough for people to overcome that. And I think most folks in the country can look at that and see it's gotten harder for the middle class. It's gotten harder for those in low income than it was 30 years ago. And I think young people today see and feel a responsibility to do something about that. Uh, generationally, there's clearly a difference in, I think, how people are viewing their role and responsibility in this country. And it's inspiring, certainly to folks like myself, to see a generation who sees it as their opportunity and their responsibility to actually lean into some of these challenges and turn them into opportunities and to support our, our country to get stronger. So, I, you know, you have generational shifts in the way people think about their role in society. I think we've seen that happen. I think social entrepreneurship in part has been able to rise uh, because of the way many young people are looking at that today. And it, it heartens me to see so many capable folks from all walks of life uh, devoting themselves uh, to trying to lean into some of these challenges rather than say, on my watch, I'm not going to do anything about it. They're saying, on my watch, I own this and I am going to get in the way. I am going to make a difference. And our country is better off as a result. You think we have technology in, in some small or maybe large way to thank for uh, the rise of social entrepreneurship? And what I mean by that is because we can no longer stick our head in the sand and pretend that some of these challenges don't exist where now technology uh, and the rise of, of media, including social media, essentially is bombarding us with the truth of what challenges and problems the world is facing. And as a, as a result of not being able to ignore it, that these younger generations see the world differently than perhaps uh, you or I did as we were growing up? I think certainly that uh, technology plays a role in uh, how this whole process has developed. What you just mentioned that you know, think of all the, you know, police brutality has probably been happening for a long time, but it wasn't until it was captured on uh, iPhones that actually people started to wake up more broadly to, to the injustice inherent in what was happening. Sure, so sure. clearly technology played a role. Yep. I think also just starting and growing a business, right? If you think of today, our whole business is powered by Salesforce.com, right? I mean, those tools didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. Right. I mean, we run a program in eight, 18 cities across the country and are able to use good systems and technology to actually have quality control, to have data. You know, all of our learning comes by being able to assess and analyze data and make good decisions about uh, how to move forward and how to improve things. So clearly there's an access to and cost effectiveness of actually putting in place the infrastructure, the data and the applications you need to drive your business that 25 years ago was almost impossible uh, to do, especially running multi-site organizations around the country. 
So the folks who are graduating uh, from the Europe program, who are going on to create uh, great careers with uh, many of the organizations, companies that you're working with, I'm wondering if, um, uh, and maybe this was a goal, I don't know. Uh, so my question is, what is likely creating a very positive impact in the diversity of the employee populations of the customers you're serving, the organizations that you're providing great talent for, has the diver- the positive diversity impact, Has that was that a goal of yours or has that been more of almost a byproduct uh, and something that the CEOs and leadership teams you're working with are now recognizing because of the likely the diversity of the customer bases that they're serving? that this is actually a great thing for them? Was it the goal or was it just sort of a a happenstance? So if you you look at some of our customers who are consumer-facing retail, you know, retail or consumer-facing, their customer base is growing increasingly heterogeneous. So the question is, what type of workforce do I need that can sell to, service, uh, interact with, an increasingly heterogeneous customer base. So I think many folks who are a lot closer to that uh, will recognize it as a business imperative that I need a staff to reflect the consumers and the clients that I have. So certain industries are going to move more quickly in that direction just because it's going to be the right business decision. I think there's also a general recognition that we see that when you bring diverse groups together, the quality of your decision-making goes up and you get better outcomes. That uh, is something I think people have to experience. And once you experience it, it seems very odd to be in a non-diverse environment because you recognize there's a lot of uh, reinforcement of of everyone's opinion rather than true divergence of opinion. So I think diversity in and of itself brings a diversity of thought, creativity that, again, many companies recognize will be part of their competitive advantage. Um, And so then you go to year up, uh, you know, I think our customers and clients appreciate the aspects of diversity we can bring to bear. It is not uh, the, you know, I always say to our clients, we work with a population who is 95% of color and 100% low income, but we're not, we're not saying to you, you know, we, we work with low income young adults of color. We, we have talent. We have very motivated, very resilient, very hungry talent. You need that in order to be successful. Now, in addition to the talent we provide, there's an added benefit that it's bringing a diversity of experience and thought to your business, which I would argue is only going to make you stronger as well. So it's an added benefit of working with the organization is you're getting a highly diverse population, which for, uh, I think, most enlightened CEOs recognize that if they're not building diversity into their organizations at the base level and growing diverse staffs, tell me, who's going to lead a a country in companies at a time when this becomes a majority-minority country? Who's going to lead that diverse society? Well, business is going to have to be building that talent and that leadership talent, diverse leadership talent, um, and being proactive and deliberate about it. So, again, if I'm, you know, not all Wall Street is is, is, uh, forward-thinking and there's some short-termism for sure, but the reality is is that I think you're, you're, many, many of your CEOs recognize the long-term need 
to invest in diverse populations to do that thoughtfully. And increasingly, it's going to be important for them to sell and serve their own clients. So talking about talent, uh, the talent that works for and delivers year ups programs. And I've had the opportunity to interact with, with some of them. It's an amazing group of individuals. What do you look for? What's most important to you as you think about the people who are going to be delivering year ups programs to these young adults around the country? What, what, what are some of the most important criteria that you're looking for when it comes to those that are going to enroll as members of your team? We always say year up is we don't care how much you know till we know how much you care. So you start in an organization like Europe with understanding why does someone want to be here? Why do they want to serve young people? How do they in fact consider it uh, something they're grateful to be in a position to serve others? And at a base case, they are highly aligned with in our mission and find it deeply meaningful. So you start there. And I always say, if you can't get past that, it really doesn't matter what competency someone's going to bring to the equation. Um, if they're not aligned with our mission, with our values, with the operating principles of this company, it really doesn't matter uh, on the skill level. Now, assuming you have people who are mission fit, then clearly you want to find people who are excellent in whatever functional area you're hiring for, whether it be a teacher, whether it's someone working with our corporate partners, someone in HR or IT. But you start and end with mission. Uh, we use our students in the recruiting process. And I think students are excellent judges of character of the folks who may want to work here. No one gets a job teaching in Europe unless they mock teach a class of students. And those students uh, are very important. Their feedback is very important to whether or not we make a higher decision. Um, we trust our students to bring that insight and intuition to bear. And over the years, it's proven to be very effective. Uh, to identify the folks for whom this is the right next step in their lives and that they should be a, a staff member here. I mean, we'll hire 250 people this year across the country, and we want the best people in the country who have the courage and, some might say, the audacity to actually believe that in our lifetimes we can change this country for the better and want to get on that journey uh, with a company that's been growing at 20 25% for the past 15 years and has an opportunity to make an impact on something we, uh, we all care about. Well, I had the opportunity to attend the inaugural graduation in Phoenix. And I will tell you that as an audience member, there was a young gal, and I believe if my memory serves, her name was Emily. She got up on stage. Uh, she gave uh, a very short speech specifically to her father who was in the audience and being a father of two daughters myself and listening to this young adult uh, who likely uh, up until year up, uh, uh, you know, whose future was incredibly uncertain and sharing with her father as if there was no one else in the room, um, how much his support for her has meant over her lifetime and how she was going to pay forward what she had learned uh, through the Europe program and through the employer that she was going to be uh, joining full time as a result of the program. And, uh, you know, as an audience member, not only was it touching and moving, but it got me thinking about not only did this, did your program, did Europe's program impact her 
but it likely changed the trajectory of generations well beyond her and what those lives are going to look like. And I, 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 talking about it again, you know, it gives me the, the, the positive chills in that what you're doing is it's a massive impact, um, not only for the for the stu- the young students who are graduating, but or the young adults, but for families who uh, aren't even on the planet yet. I, I, I have to assume you think about that a lot. Well, we we think a lot about amplifying the impact of what we do on a day to day basis, and you know we're going to have we have about nine thousand alums right now. We'll have you know thirty five. 40,000 alums over the next six, seven years. We'll have more alums in this country than Harvard Business School has alums in this country. Um, we're going to have a rising, increasingly powerful professional group of young men and women who are rising up in corporate America. They can lift while they climb. Uh, they will be the role models for their own families and children. Uh, we have many, many, many examples of students who now, because they're gainfully employed, make sure that their siblings stay on track. I was in New York uh, just the other day and a gentleman came up to me and said, Gerald, I work at the New York Stock Exchange in technology. And you know what? I have a great job. I just put my mother through nursing school, right? So imagine not only helping his siblings, not only being a role model in this community for what this can look like, but actually going to his mom and saying, you know, mom, I know you want to get a good job and want to be a nurse. I'm going to pay for you to go to nursing school. So if one person in a family gets out of poverty, the impact on the rest of that family can often be significant and can then break a cycle of poverty that may have existed for many years. And then the benefit going forward, obviously, is significant. Um, you know, that's, that's uh, all happening as we speak. And it's critical that we year up keep investing in our alums, uh, helping them to lift while they climb, and indeed paying attention to what supports they may need to do so as they continue down their professional path. For the folks out there who want to learn more about Year Up, what is the best step for them to take? Uh, come, come down and meet one of our students. <laughs> so, look, the, the, the number one thing, we're in 18 cities around the country, um, just opening up in Dallas and Los Angeles. You know, I say to everyone, if you really have an interest in this, I'm sure you can go to our website, you know, www.yearup.org. Of course you can do that. But you know what? Come down and have a meet some students, have lunch with students. Um, it will leave an impression that, at least for many folks, has got them to rethink, wow, so what is this population that I may not be seeing clearly enough, and how could I potentially incorporate those young adults into the areas of my company I need to hire. Or maybe it's you want to mentor a student or you want to come down and guest speak. So we have thousands and thousands of volunteers all over the country. We're spending, you know, one hour a year all the way to one hour a week investing in young people who downright deserve it. And not only do they get a lot out of it and enjoy the process, but they're really helping another young person achieve their potential and you know, I have great faith that there's a lot of people in this country uh, who want to make it better, are willing to work to make it better. And we don't have to just dwell on the negatives in this country. We can actually take what's wrong with this country and fix it by what's right with this country. In 15 years of doing this and 14,000 students later, 
I'm 100% convinced that this is a solvable issue, and we do not have to live with the opportunity divide as large as it is today, and on our watch, we can reduce it. Well, Gerald, I, I can't thank you enough for spending the time with us. Uh, the work that you and your team at Year Up uh, that you've been doing over the past 15 plus years is uh, nothing short of phenomenal, high impact, making a difference in our communities, making a difference in our country, frankly, making a difference in the world. And your passion uh, around this is unmistakable. Uh, again, having witnessed it firsthand as an audience member of the inaugural class in Phoenix, I can tell all of our listeners out there that what Europe is doing uh, is absolutely necessary and and, and just <laughs> it's it's touching to say the least. So, Gerald, please keep doing what you're doing, as I know you will, and can't thank you enough for joining us. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. You guys are great partners. You're helping us do this work, so we consider you a partner on the longer-term journey to close the divide and really appreciate all that you do to help us grow the best teams we can so that we can serve many, many more young people. So thanks for having me, and uh, I hope all goes well. I appreciate that. Thanks, Gerald. Until next time, thanks for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions you'd like me to send Gerald, drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com and I'll gladly forward them on. If you enjoyed Gerald's interview, there are several others I think you'll dig as well. Doug Rao, founder and CEO of The Daily Table and co-CEO of Conscious Capitalism, Kristen Hadid, the founder of Student Made, and Ann Rhodes, former Chief People Officer at Southwest Airlines and the author of Built on Values, are just a few of the many episodes you can find at yscouts.com forward slash podcast. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.